Welcome to Him We Proclaim, a podcast devoted to the preaching ministry of the Mount Church. Know that the following sermon is specifically intended to build up our local church in Clemson, South Carolina. Feel free to listen along and distribute what you hear, while prioritizing what we pray is the faithful preaching ministry of the healthy local church to which you meaningfully belong. With that, all grace to you as you listen to this episode of Him We Proclaim. morning. Let me invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Titus. It's towards the back of the Bible. Titus. And we're going to be reading and then studying uh, verses 10 through 15 together this morning, chapter 2. We're actually going to pick up right there towards the, the back of verse 10. Paul's been laying out instructions for godliness for various people in the church. And here comes his his ambition, his goal, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We do pray that you would grant the Holy Spirit now to come and to work in our hearts, help us feel the weight of your word, have a sense of the truth of it in a way that really is uh, incredibly impactful uh, for our lives. Uh, Please do uh, a great work of making us more godly this morning and as we go out than we were coming in. Set us up for increasing godliness and for the testimony that that preaches to the world about the truth of the gospel and of your grace. We ask it for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, that you should not judge a book by its cover is a common phrase with us. Uh, it means that inner content is to outweigh outward appearance or adornment. And in a spiritual sense, at one level, that's true, while also quite deceptive at another. Uh, It's true in the unfortunate sense, right, that we don't always well represent in life what we actually are in Christ. How we behave isn't always an exact appropriation of what we do actually believe. But we need to be careful right there, because there is 
a sense in which we are to be judged and judging by our cover. And we can't afford to be deceived to the contrary on this. The deceiving thought runs like so, that so long as I've declared for Christ, I'm justified and I am reconciled and I can now live however I want to live. Or less crassly, I can afford to be courted by sin. Uh, I'm at liberty to live rather loosely. Uh, Grace gives me a cushion for laying with temptation. Uh, It is a deadly thing we do if we make the perfectly obedient Christ who came to take our sins away the author and approver of them. I'll tell you, He never does that. Jesus came, again we're speaking of Advent here, Jesus came to possess a people who adorn salvation. A divine change of heart will absolutely lead to a divine change of all we are. Lazarus, remember this, Lazarus did not stay in his grave clothes. But at the word of Christ, the command of Christ, he what? He put them off. He put them off for the adornment of a living man. And so it is spiritually. A Christian should be obviously so. Grace makes godly. And all the godly are still where the king increases in us. And that is the goal of our text today, is to convict us about the necessity of godliness and to show us the way we can come by its enduring increase. And so first, it'll just serve us well to get a handle on the situation here for uh, this group of churches that are in Crete. And the situation is, is not a good one. It's not a healthy one. There is a, a good order, right? There is a, a way of existing for apostolic churches, but these Cretan churches are, Paul says, out of order. They're out of order. That gospel order has been greatly disturbed. And so he is now dispatched Titus, you see that in chapter 1, verse 5, uh, to put what good remains back into order, starting with the appointment of elders in every church who will not falter in the noble task. Aside their efforts and supporting them, they themselves will be, chapter 2, verse 7, models of good works and an approach to teaching sound doctrine that disarms any enemy. And that is a fitting offense against the enemies the churches were facing. You see, as you read there, this letter, you come upon two main rivals. One of those rivals is religious. One of those rivals is cultural. But while their affront may come from different directions, the effect on the churches is essentially the same. It's that they're inclined to live out of step with the gospel. And and to be more specific... It's to be ignorant of the power of grace for the necessity of godliness. Uh, The religious challenger cares only about the show of religion to the exclusion of a new creation. It's all morality, it's all merit and the power of man, perhaps in the name of God, but has nothing to do with the true faith that works through love. It may draw out a profession of faith in Christ, but leave the life totally barren of his fruit. 
And the goal of the challenger that is the Cretan culture is ultimately the same. You see in chapter 1, verse 12, Paul quotes a Cretan prophet, who, however false, speaks truly of his own people. Cretans are always liars and evil beasts and lazy gluttons. Okay, so that is the, the cultural air that these churches are breathing outside of their gospel family, outside of their gospel sanctuary. And sadly, it is proving influential and destructive for them. Why is Paul writing to Titus here? Same kind of effect can happen with us. Our culture can be influential and destructive for us where we're not watchful while we're in it. It plays on us because we were part of it. And we aren't totally rid of it or our own sinful desires. So that if we aren't intentional about establishing our lives in Christ, all that's around us in the way of real hatred and pride and divisiveness and expressive individualism and the damning ideal of the sovereign self and the wicked glut of sensuality and just irresponsible rottenness, right? Everybody owes me everything all the time. It so dominates our culture today. If we aren't careful there, it'll get in us and it'll get on us as the Cretan culture was on the Cretan churches. And suddenly, what you'll get is chapter 1, verse 16. They profess to know God, but they deny God by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Well, again, that's no good. That needs fixing. But as we work our way there, let me just ask us, have we ever thought about the suggestive power of our lives? Whether for good or for ill. Whether for sin or for the Savior. They profess to know God, but they deny Him. What does it say? By their works. Not by their mouths. By their works. So here then is a book that can be judged by its cover. Dear ones, if our lives are marked and regulated by disobedience, it testifies. It preaches, at least, if you go through this letter, that grace has not appeared. That there's no actual salvation of which to speak. Or that grace actually oxygenates temptation. Or that Christ, having no first advent, will not have a second one. And that this is our home. Indeed, in chapter 1, verse 2, it then makes God out to be a liar. It makes the gospel out to be a farce. And it makes grace out to be to no glorious effect at all. In short, it demonizes Jesus. And only confirms the suspicions of the lost that there's really nothing to see here. But what then is the sermon of the godly life? What's the message of the one adorned in the doctrine of God our Savior? Is it not that there really is a God our Savior? And that there is a salvation 
And that grace really is mighty indeed. The, the first half verse of our passage is Paul's strong ambition over against their crumbling situation in the church. It's that again, in everything, they all, from old to young, men to women, master to slave, if they have named Christ their own and are then His own, it's that they all, in everything, adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. And there are two things I want us to see in that phrase. One is that what our life adorns matters. And two, doctrine matters for that. Here's how Paul put it in the first verse of this letter. That a great part of his service to Christ was to labor among the churches for, quote, their knowledge of the truth, doctrine, which accords with godliness. You see? You cannot do away with sound doctrine and expect to be soundly godly. You cannot be. So, it is on purpose that we emphasize it here, contrary to sort of the habit of churches today, to pass off doctrine as at best divisive, and at worst, just unimportant or a waste of time. Much to the displeasure, we're seeing here, of our Savior, and to the chagrin of His kind of Christianity. I see that as a Christian, just as a Christian. And think, on the basis of Titus, they must not care much about the church's godliness. Or the directly related reputation of Jesus in the world. May God help us to be directly different than that. The truth is something we wear as Christians. You dispose of doctrine, you may have all kinds of crowds, but they're all going to be naked of the truth. And in due time, they're going to be ashamed at the appearing of Christ. If the enemy, if our adversary hates sound doctrine, and he does, sound doctrine is not our enemy, friends. Minimalism is. But not the biblical robustness that has as its aim practical Christianity. And that's important. Now, all teaching that is thoroughly Christian teaching aims at the life by way of the heart. It aims at adornment. It aims at true godliness. And beloved, if you've ever wondered what exactly is godliness, kind of one of those, those weird terms that's hard to define, what exactly is godliness? Uh, here today is your answer. Godliness is a life emanating from a heart that wears salvation on its sleeves. It's the embodiment of biblical truth that's ever centered on the gospel. It's affectionate obedience to God's word in light of the Savior and His mighty grace. That's what we're about to see. So, with that, let's come to the way that Paul sees best to develop godliness. First, in verses 11 to 12. He says we must adorn godliness. Why? 
Because Christ has appeared. Now here's how he puts it. He says, for the, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and, positively, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Now, I said, he said, we must be godly because Christ has appeared. That's what he means when he says, for the grace of God has appeared. He means, and be not unamazed, that all the grace God ever promised, all the grace God ever displayed, all the grace God revealed whatsoever was in due time given an actual face. It appeared. A face upon which we in time and space could concentrate our hearts. And more than a face, a whole body. <laughs> and, and deeper still, a fully human nature. And still more awesome, one that was able, as we're going to see, to then sympathize with us and suffer for us and sufficiently die for us on a cross. God's grace had its climactic epiphany in the appearance of the man, Christ Jesus. You recall what John said about him in John chapter 1, how he was the very embodiment of God, full of grace and truth. We're talking about the incarnation where God overall was made not just low, but lowest beneath everybody so that anybody might be saved. You see what came by grace appearing? What Paul say? He says, salvation for all people. And I'll just mention this here. It is not a coincidence that as Paul has just been giving some details of godliness to those specific groups above in chapter 2, he closes by dignifying the slave as a co-heir of Christ with equal responsibility for adorning godliness in the situation that is peculiar to them. And the fallout for us in that is significant and it's double. Right? When Paul says grace appeared bringing salvation for all people, he means even the most despised among us. Like a slave. But he also implies no matter how despised by men or how low they may be among men, that apparently bitter providence in no way absolves us of the fact that we are still sinners needing the salvation Jesus supplies. That one may be oppressed by men does not absolve them from the wrath of God that's due their sins. So God be praised. Grace has appeared with salvation in His wings for any who would take refuge underneath them. But now, as Christ's advent means to bring about our godliness, what do we see here? Well, for one, that if He came to save us from our sins, we've got it twisted. We've got it twisted if we think He came to comfort us in them or make us feel better about them or give us liberty to go on as if we have not been raised from the dead. As one put it, Christ came to expiate sin, put it away, not to encourage it. 
If we keep up, he says, amity, friendliness, amity with Satan, we only evidence, show, prove, continued enmity with God. Or, as the old Christian poet put it, feed no man in his sins for adulation, we might say affirmation or celebration, feed no man in his sins for adulation doth make thee parcel devil in their damnation. And some people, by how they think of Jesus, want to make him that very thing, a parcel devil. Not Paul. Not this text. Or any text of Scripture. Right? Yes, he saves us. He really does. And that, in and of itself, ought to be sufficient for us to run against all sin. But, in the off chance it's not, see that once He saves us, He takes up sanctifying us. He takes us, what does it say? He begins to train us. Grace, listen, grace gives us not an inch to go with sin. I say I'm going to get into shape. Everybody knows where this is going. And then my eyes catch sight of Oreo bonbons covered in chocolate ganache. And if it weren't for Jenny's keen eye upon me, I'd probably pop in half a dozen. But as I've asked her to do, Jenny accountably watches and furrows her brow and shakes her head. And if I ate it, she would hand me a scrumptious celery stick and a deeply satisfying glass of water. And it would be good for me. But now here's the thing. I don't like celery and water only a little better. But see here, that before Christ begins to train us, He does something really, really helpful. He changes our taste buds. Okay. He makes sin like celery. Sorry if you like celery. But what, just whatever you don't like. He makes sin like celery and obedience like Oreo bonbons covered in chocolate ganache. Now, admittedly, it doesn't always seem like that because Satan is a real being and he dips the celery in chocolate and tries to cover the bonbons in manure. But, that's where Jesus begins to really take up his task. That's where grace really begins to train us. Part of training is the often excruciating process of learning what is and is not actually good for us. And so having supplied us with these new taste buds, he begins to train us to discern and then distinguish between the pleasures of the world and that of God. And having done that, to outright renounce the former as belonging just to this world. And deciding then for the latter which agree with the world above. Beloved, let's not get it confused. Grace came down from heaven and trains us then to condition ourselves to stand up and out in this passing age for God and what is heavenly and everlasting. 
And to that end, we just need to ask ourselves the question, are we self-controlled? Are we upright? And are we godly? One writer suggests uh, these virtues, quote, display a changed relation to oneself, self-control, to neighbor, upright, and to God, godly. Maybe. Big picture, grace is laboring to make us like himself. Something of what Paul means is that uh, is the fact that God incarnate, the very fact of God incarnate itself, alerts us and trains us for godliness. Right? We can open up the scriptures and we can look upon Jesus and, and see what he did, see how he lived. And what do we see when we do that? We see the perfect model of active human obedience to God. We see one who was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. We see in Scripture one who never faltered to legislate himself by the Word of God for the good of souls and the glory of his Father all the way to death on a cross. And we see one further who is alive, and on the throne, and still human, and able then to help us in every way grow in godliness. Let grace train you. Dear ones, adorn godliness because Christ has appeared. And next, adorn it because Christ will appear. He's going to come back. There is a washing and a working in the waiting For our blessed hope, it says, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. It is not only His first, but also His second advent that ought to incline us to godliness. And it does this by at least a few considerations. First, that Christ is risen from the dead and exalted to glory and all set to return and appear in His glory confirms this at least for us that the way of obedience to all God's Word, even to death on a cross, is the way to go in the world if we have any hope at all of seeing His glory. You see it? And further, alongside that, The fact that He's coming again is a continual just ringing of the bell against all the remaining sloth and sinful tendency within us. Right here with Job, Paul is saying to the churches, I know that our Redeemer lives. And that at the last, He will stand upon the earth. And after our skin has been thus destroyed, yet we shall see God in Christ whom we shall see for ourselves, and our eyes behold, and not another. And whereas Revelation 1-7 tells us very, very burdeningly that this will be hell for some. Every eye will see Him, and they will wail. Beloved, it will be home for you. It will be the vindication and celebration of godliness. And sin will be no more. And if we're headed where sin is not, 
and never will be again, and godliness is the radiance of every person in the place, shouldn't it already be seen in our lives while we wait? Church, do we know the sanctifying power of what John Piper calls faith in future grace? Everybody loves Hebrews 11, right? But have we ever seen the dynamic at play in the lives of those who have gone before us? Why did Abraham go on to be a sojourner? Live in tents. The great Abraham, when he had a good thing going back at home in Ur. Why did he do that? How did he ever come to conclude, yep, I'm going to offer up the son of promise, Isaac. How did he get there? Why did Moses count the reproaches of Christ greater wealth than all the treasures of Egypt, the dominant power at the time? Why did he choose to be mistreated with God's people rather, it says, than sit back and enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin? Why? In what hope did Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel and on and on conquer kingdoms and enforce justice and obtain promises and stop the mouths of lions, etc., etc.? How did they endure being mocked and flogged and imprisoned and tortured and stoned and sawn into? It says that they're sawn into and rendered homeless in this world. How did that church in Hebrews find it their joy to be afflicted and disavowed and plundered by the state just for having compassion on their brothers and sisters in prison. How is it, dear ones, that our Lord endured the shame of the cross? All for the joy that was set before Him. That's what pulled Him through. So all these disown this world as their home by faith in a lasting city whose designer and builder is God. They were looking forward to faith's reward. And that had a demonstrable effect upon their lives. It's what drove them in life even to death every day. Listen, Worldliness finds a home with us where we adopt a worldview that identifies this world as our home. Spiritual settling greatly besets a life marked by sinning. So why train ourselves for the joy of another world and in the hope of it, if practically speaking, it doesn't exist? If for all intents and purposes, it never crosses our minds in a given day. If it's subordinate to this fading world. Why be self-sacrificial if there is no resurrection to a better life? Why forego the luxuries of this world if there is no lasting one later? But what if there is? (laughs) Because I'm here to tell you, with Paul, there is. And to set our hearts upon that world and embrace it by faith will make us godly. 
Here's how John puts it in 1 John chapter 3. He says this. He says, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him. Because we shall see Him as He is. Now listen. And everyone who thus hopes in Him, who thus hopes in Him, purifies himself or herself, even as he is pure. Do you see it? That hope makes us godly. There is a washing simply in the waiting. We ought to adorn godliness because Christ has appeared, and we ought to adorn godliness because Christ will appear. Finally then, we're to adorn godliness because Christ has atoned. So far, we're to be godly because Christ came down to this world. And we're to be godly because we're destined to go up to His world. But now also, we're to be godly because Christ was suspended between those two worlds for you and me. So Paul writes in verse 14 that Christ gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. Church, see then that we do not do justice to the grace of the cross by limiting its achievement, as we contend to do, to the sinner's justification. By his death, Jesus also laid claim to that new covenant promise of the sinner's regeneration and sanctification. He purchased the promised work and power of the Holy Spirit. Plainly stated in this letter in chapter 3, verse 5. And now we've got to get this. We've got to get this. If you're in Christ, you're no longer a slave to sin. You can punch that slave master in the mouth. Okay? Its power has been broken. He set you free indeed to all out refuse its demands and advances. You have no responsibility whatsoever anymore to sin. None at all. You've been redeemed. And have you noted in the text, you've been redeemed, it says, from all lawlessness. Not just some. Not just this one and that one, but not all of them. All lawlessness. There is no sin left that's kept any degree of its former sovereignty with you. Jesus is now your Lord. And He's given you real power by the Spirit to pull a J.L. and Sisera against sin. Do you remember that? To drive a stake (laughs) right through the skull of sin, all the way into the ground. You put it to death. Whatever the sin may be. Or however greatly and consistently it's tormented you, the power in the cross is more than all that has gone before you. You needn't ever be a defeated soul where Jesus has entered in and staked His claim. He gave Himself for us to possess us and to purify us. And He will not suffer the grace of His cross to be in vain. He's committed His glory 
as Savior to our being godly. And not lethargically so. What was he saying? Zealously so. Oh, we love that word, right? Zealots. Yes. That is what we should be. I don't know about you, but I often find myself in survival mode against temptation and sin. And I wonder, I wonder if that's because I'm actually adrift from the full import of the cross. If I need a lens adjustment. Do I fight sin best by being focused merely on hating sin? In which case I'm still focused on sin. Or on being Christ's man, Christ's woman. On appropriating the purpose of the cross. On on loving godliness. Do you see how Paul defines it here? He says godliness isn't just personal exercise and obedience to God. It's not just the life-altering effect of one's faith in future grace, but also, as one put it, what does he say? A zest for noble deeds. I love that. A grace trains us to be enthusiasts of good works. It's all, in fact, very, very public. It may start with, but is not restricted to self. It's eagerly let out all over in edifying other people, in making peace where peace needs to be made, in embodying gentility towards all people, being a model citizen in this culture, honoring the honorable, minding our tongue, meeting needs, and you can fill in the blank by the rest of Scripture. What we're to see, though, is that this is not a side effect of Christianity. It is a direct purpose of the death of Christ for us, that in being His own people, we're to be zealous for the godliness that is God's kind of good works. Are we zealots of good works? To ask it another way, are we devoted to displaying the verifiable truth of the cross and indeed the whole of the gospel from Christ's descent to His return By the way we live. By the fervor of our deeds. By the things we prioritize and why we happen to prioritize those very things. What do we aspire to be? And what do we conspire to do? Well, Christ has appeared. Christ will appear. Christ has atoned. He's come down, we're going up, and there stands His cross, always at the center. And so, we're called and equipped to adorn godliness in every way and every situation. Here's how I want to close. We're to do that, but never alone. Jesus is always with us, but He's also given us a church and shepherds in the call to be godly. We absolutely will need all the help our Lord affords us. You'll note He didn't give Himself to redeem only me. He gave Himself to redeem us, is what it says in the text. 
and to purify for himself not a, a person only, but a, what does it say? A, a people who are zealous for godliness. Our tangible growth and development in Christ is a community project. We cannot and will not make it on our own. And Christ never intended you to have to. We're meant to lean into each other for all the help we can get. We all need to be about godliness. We all need to be able to increasingly promote it. And to do it from a a deep-seated understanding, what we see in this text, of grace. And we all need to remain humble enough to freely admit we have not arrived and do actually need as much help as we can get. If we mean to see His glory with great joy. And as it relates to your elders, I'll just say what Paul says here and I'll just leave it there. Uh, the church is to adorn godliness. What? Why? Verse 15. Because Titus, on behalf of Jesus, says so. Right? It is a great part of the elder's task to demand all of you to walk in line with the truth of the gospel. And Paul also tells us that we're to refuse to be ghosted by any of you about it. Do not let anyone disregard you. Beloved, uh, your elders have failed Christ if we are not persistently bothering you to be godly. And you will be held accountable by Him if, verse 15, you disregard those men who, in His name and for His glory and by the authority of His Word, exhort and even rebuke you because they love you and desire you with all our hearts to walk in step with Christ. So, so many of you have helped me in this way over the last two years. You've helped me in this way, and as I, I'm just so deeply thankful for you in all the ways that you've helped me. And I just want to then encourage you also to just thank Jesus. Be thankful this morning to Jesus that He's given you overseers who really do desire to see you adorn godliness. That is only to your benefit. Okay. Friend, without godliness, no one will see the Lord. That's what the writer of Hebrews says. At least not as one will want to see Him. But the good news is that Jesus has made such a living possible. He came and He lived and He died and He rose to save you. Both to justify and renew you. To free you from the penalty and the power of sin. Really just to to save you to the uttermost. And as He is returning, I just want to tell you there is a little bit of a rush on this grace. And so just please don't leave this morning without repenting 
of your sins and placing your faith in Jesus Christ. If you want to talk about that, I want to make myself available to you as soon as we are done here this morning. Beloved, this Advent, we've seen that as the King increases in us, so too will rest, so too will devotion, and now, so too will godliness. In this sense, you can judge a book by its cover. And fact is, uh, we're going to be read by folks regardless, right? Christ is his own target. And so for his sake, let me just exhort us to be a book well worth the read. Right? Let's be a people who by conduct display the truth of a good and gracious Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We pray only now that you would let it have its full effect in every heart as you deem best and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.